0: text this morning comes from the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, let turn with me. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Acts 1, 9 to 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for what we just read. And I pray that this doctrine, that is sometimes overlooked, will make its way into our hearts, and I pray that it will have a, a sweet effect in us. So work among us now, and I pray for those who may be listening, whether via be the live stream, or even in this room that do not yet know you. Lord, I pray that by the Spirit you will convict them of their sin, draw them to Christ, for he is sufficient to save. In his name. Amen. One of the most, I think, one of the most convicting uh, verses in all of Scripture is when Paul says that he desires to depart and be with the Lord. He's ready. He's ready. He's a middle-aged man, and he's ready to die. It's not as if he's ready for more pain or suffering. It's not that sort of thing, but he's ready. And he says the reason he's ready, he knows that to be in heaven with Christ is better than life on this earth. It's convicting because I think I think it's hard to get there. I think for many of us, we value our lives here. Our lives are quite comfortable. Paul, knowing the Lord as deeply as he did, he knew in the the deepest part of his being, that to depart was far better. But he says, but, looks like I'll be staying so that I can do more ministry. This idea that we are going to heaven, this idea that this world is not our home, it's sprinkled throughout the New Testament, isn't it? It's all over the place, and it's here to console us, it's here to encourage us, it's here to get our sights off of this world. And if we want to be the sort of Christians we should be, we must be heavenly minded. We must live not for this world, but for the world to come. And this doctrine that we'll speak about this morning speaks to that. Normally here at Grace, we preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible. And this morning, my approach is a bit different than the norm. This is more topical in nature, and the topic at hand is the ascension of Christ into heaven. The same event is in Mark and Luke. Many of the New Testament letters speak of the event in varying detail. The Old Testament, too, foretells of this event. And when you look at how often the Ascension is mentioned in the Bible, we must recognize it's an essential doctrine. One of our earliest church documents, the the Apostles' Creed, speaks of this doctrine. You may recall in the the Apostles' Creed, there's 12 movements. It speaks of the primary events in Jesus' life and ministry. Here's a sampling. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. And then here, here's the doctrine for today. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father, Almighty. In my view, many speak about the birth of Christ, the death of Christ. We speak of his resurrection from the dead, and about Christ's eventual return to the earth, but I think we do not speak enough about this event, about Christ's ascension. This is a link in the chain that often goes missing, and that is to our detriment. The ascension is crucial to understanding all of Christ, all of his benefits. Our forefathers in the faith made much of this doctrine. Augustine speaks of its centrality. John Owen, too. Owen, for instance, it says this, the assumption of our Lord, or you could say the ascension of our Lord into glory, his glorious reception in heaven is a principal article of the faith of the church, the great foundation of its hope and consolation in this world. Those are strong words. The ascension is the great foundation of the church's hope. It's our consolation In this world, the ascension consoles us, it comforts us to know Christ is in heaven, that he has accomplished our salvation. Another writer, Andrew Murray, has said there are four great cornerstones that lay the foundation of the Christian faith. The divinity of Christ, the incarnation, the atonement on the cross, and the ascension to the throne. This last is most wonderful, the crown of all the rest. That's Murray's words. The Ascension is the crown of all the rest. So this doctrine, in short, is not something we should neglect. And I plan to look at this doctrine today. We'll look especially here in Acts. And then, then at the end, we'll take a peek at Psalm 24. These two passages speak of the same doctrine. They just come at it really from different angles. So first, if you're note taker this morning... Really, it's simple. I'm just going to describe what the Ascension is, and then there are three benefits that we'll go over. So first, the Ascension is the event in which the resurrected Jesus rises into the realm of his Father. The Ascension is the event in which the resurrected Jesus rises into the realm of his Father. You could say it in different ways, that will be sufficient for now. Let's begin by looking at Acts 1. You'll notice Acts 1 is the beginning of the book. This book tells the story of the first Christians to live after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in verses 1 to 8, there's a summary of the events that took place after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And then verse 9, we read about the ascension of Christ into heaven. Take note. This event, this is the event that bridges the ministry of Jesus and the life and ministry of the church. Acts is a book that tells the story of the first Christian, the first churches. And what is the event in between? We could say it's the ascension. Luke ends his gospel with the ascension, and then he begins Acts with the ascension. So right away, after Jesus' ministry, it's the assumption of Christ into glory. This is the foundation, if you will, of the churches. Ministry. Now, the ascension is only described in verse 9. Verse 9 says this Now, when he, Jesus, had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. That's all it says taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, this record is from the vantage point of the disciples. They see him go up, they see it from the ground. The real glory of this thing is what's going on behind the scenes. It's what they did not see. The true significance is what's taking place in heaven. In Acts, we see things from their vantage point. We see the cloud. Then we see two men who appear before the disciples. And they said to them, In the of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? It sounds like a rebuke, doesn't it? The same Jesus who was taken up from you was so common like manner. almost sounds strange to be rebuked after this wonderful event, and then these men rebuke you like that. It's gentle, but it seems like a rebuke. We have to remember that Acts is a book about the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church, and this occurrence then makes more sense. The men, we can assume these are angels. They confirm what the disciples see with their eyes. Remember, in the gospels, often people don't believe their eyes. And these angels help confirm for these men, what you just saw is true. He did indeed rise up. And he was received into a cloud. But then there's also a call, because right after this, they get to work, don't they? The Holy Spirit comes, and now they must go about preaching the gospel. That's from their vantage point. Now what's going on? On the other side of this, what do we not see? One clue is that Jesus is received into a cloud. And surely this is not just any old cloud. It's not a rain cloud. This cloud is a, is a cloud that we've read about before. The Israelites, you may recall, they were led through the wilderness by cloud. They were on their way to the promised land of Canaan and all the way. God, in his mercy, led them by cloud. At the crossing of the Red Sea, the Egyptians are chasing God's people. And it is by Cloud. That God uses to shield the Israelites it is a cloud of protection between the is- Egyptians and the Israelites and you remember when Jesus is transfigured he takes James John Peter and he goes up on the mount and he's transfigured before them this is one of the few instances in the Bible where we actually hear God speak audibly and how does God do so? He comes down in a cloud. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus is found alone. But they kept quiet. and told no one. In those days, any of the things they had seen. So this cloud comes, and what is this cloud? It's just another way, I think, of saying that when Jesus is received into the cloud, he's received into the presence of God. He does not go up into the cloud because he needs protection from his enemies, but because he has conquered them. And he goes up and he receives A name that is above every name. This is what we read about in Philippians. Again, what's going on behind the scenes? When Jesus goes up, that's all we see. When we read other parts of the New Testament, we're filled in. After Jesus made himself of no reputation, after he took the form of a bondservant, after he died on the cross, after coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, God has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name. That that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Elsewhere, Jesus is called King in Revelation. He has a robe and even on his thigh, the name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus ascended and he took his throne. Jesus ascended because he won the battle like a great warrior. His enemies tried to convince him to sin and Jesus overcame. His enemies are now his footstool. So the Bible says. His enemies are his footstool. The implication there is that if you have a footstool, you must have a seat. Jesus has a seat now. That's another thing we read about. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this is what it means that Jesus ascended. And we just sing about this, didn't we? Crown him with many crowns. The Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly... Anthem drowns, all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. All hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. So, what's going on behind the cloud? He's king, he's seated, it's finished, it's over, he's ascended, it's done. Now from here, there are many benefits. As Owen has said, as others have said, this truth is our great consolation. It's our great comfort. So with the rest of our time this morning, I'll cover three benefits of Jesus' ascension. And these three benefits are not original to me. You can find these in the Heidelberg Catechism or in the Orthodox Baptist Catechism. These same benefits are listed there. I'm going to do them in a bit of a different order. The first benefit of Jesus' ascension... Is this, Jesus ascends to, pre- to prepare a place for us in heaven. Jesus ascends to prepare a place for us in heaven. Jesus told his disciples he was going to go prepare a place for them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. The way you know. And that's where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So, Jesus prepares a place for us. We could also say it this way Jesus paves the way to heaven for us. This is unchartered territory for mankind. No human flesh, no human flesh had ever ascended to heaven to be in God's very abode. This is the first time. Jesus is the first to rise. He is the captain of our salvation. The saints of old, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom or shield. It was a resting place. Christ did not yet pave the way for mankind to enter into the presence of God. It is only after Christ that mankind is able to enter into the abode of God. Full atonement had to be made first. Jesus prays for this. John 17, he prays to the Father just before he goes to the, to the cross, and he prays. He tells his disciples it's going to happen. And just a few chapters later, he prays. It's like he's, he's doubling up. Like, I've, I've told them they're going to be where I am. Now, Father, make that happen. I desire, he says, that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. Now think about this. This is the first man in heaven, the first man in the abode of God. In the incarnation, God comes down to earth. God comes down to the realm of man. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man, or more precisely, Jesus is truly God, truly man. So in the incarnation, God comes to man. In the ascension, it's the reverse. Man goes to God. This is groundbreaking. No flesh before this could be in God's sight. When Adam and Eve sin, they're not in God's presence anymore. Not in that covenantal, actual physical sort of sense. They're banished from the garden. And angels prevent them from getting back in. The Heidelberg says says it this way. Jesus ascends that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge. Jesus ascends that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge. So when the disciples watch Jesus go up into heaven, they realize it, it can actually happen. Man can go up there and dwell with God. It's a sure pledge. The Heidelberg continues, Jesus is the head and he will also take us, his members, up to himself. An author I've benefited from on this topic is Garrett Scott Dawson. He says this, The continuing humanity of Christ is the pattern and guarantee of the glorified humanity which awaits us. So in heaven, in other words, you're going to be human. You're going to have bodies, physical human bodies. Man now can dwell where God is. Jesus entered the presence of God. He's the first man to do so. And he meets him as a man. Ephesians 2 alludes to this. This is, this is, a, this is a sweet picture and this is, this is one of those verses you, you read a lot and you've got to slow down to take it all in. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up there it is. You just, it's not just that you've been saved from your sins. You have been raised up. This is, this is like this is past tense. You've been saved. You've been born again. Those are past tense. But here, the past tense continues. You have been raised up. And it says this. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in some sense, this is mysterious, in one sense, we will be raised up on the last day. In another sense, Christian, you're already seated up there if you are in Christ. If you are unified with Christ, where is Christ? Seated at the right hand of the Father. You're in him. This is why this doctrine matters. This is your future, Christian. But in another sense, it's your present. So how do we walk around day to day with this truth looming before us? How does this change your week to week? Your Lord is in charge. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. but you're with him. That changes things, doesn't it? Comforts, consoles, but it also energizes, doesn't it? It energizes. It gives you a little bit of of gusto, a little bit of confidence week to week. Second benefit of Jesus' ascension, Jesus ascends that the Spirit may come. Jesus ascends that the Spirit may come. Jesus tells his disciples, this again in John, this is John 16, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. He's preparing them for his death. He's preparing them for his, his ascension as well. And he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. That's hard to swallow. Then he gives us a reason. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So Jesus has to go away that the spirit may come. And this has wonderful effects. The passage goes on. And when the spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says... It's to the church's advantage that he goes away. And the disciples surely have a hard time believing this. Do you? Is it to your advantage that Jesus is up there? That the Spirit comes? The Spirit is our helper. It convicts us and it draws us to righteousness. Not only that, passage goes on, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. We can look elsewhere in the New Testament. The Spirit prays for believers. Right from their very core. When you become a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and dwells within you, now you have the Spirit of Jesus wherever you go. And all the believers all around the world Jesus, in some sense, is there, spread out. This is why Jesus had to ascend, that the Spirit may come. The Spirit prays for us. When we do not know what to pray, the Spirit within us says, Abba, Father, on our behalf. The Spirit gives gifts to the church. It is the Spirit that bestows upon each church. The gifts receive. And the Holy Spirit accomplishes the Great Commission. It's noteworthy that when Luke speaks of the ascension in his gospel account, he does so on the heels of giving the Great Commission. So he gives the Great Commission. And then, after he gives the Great Commission, he says, I will send... The promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So he gives them the great commission, and then he tells them they're going to have help. They're going to have the spirit. The spirit will work through them to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel of Christ wherever they go. Last night, actually, I was speaking to a brother, and he pointed this out, that Jesus, by going away, Jesus assures everyone that his army is not an earthly army. He's not starting a war. I think that's worth pointing out. People really thought that Jesus was going to raise up an earthly army. He could do miracles. But when Jesus ascends to the Father... He's really confirming the fact. No, my kingdom is heavenly. And through the Spirit, you must go proclaim the kingdom. This kingdom is not of this world. We spread it by word, by the Spirit. Third benefit of Jesus' ascension. Jesus ascends to God and acts as our great high priest. Jesus ascends to God to act as our great high priest priest. First John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he is at the right hand of the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Romans 8 speaks to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. So when your enemies accuse you, yes, think back to the crucifixion. That's Paul's instruction in Romans 8. When when the enemy accuses you of wrongdoing, Paul is saying, yes, look back to the crucifixion. But not just that. He died, but furthermore, he is also risen. He is even at the right hand of God. And at the right hand of God, Romans 8 says, he makes intercession from us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sore? No! Why? Because he's at the right hand of the Father. He's right there. These things cannot separate you from the love of God because Jesus has ascended. He's taken his seat. And the advocate is with, literally with, the Father. Isaac Watts as a hymn, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. I'm going to close. It's a lengthy closing. I don't think I'm closing yet. It's a lengthy closing. Psalm 24, I want to, if you have your Bibles with me, let's turn to Psalm 24. I want to camp out here for a second. Psalm 24 is, is actually one of the Psalms of Ascension. You'll notice there. Verse 7-10 to 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, O you everlasting doors. Many will, will try to put this put this event, put this psalm uh, somewhere in the narrative of Israel. Um, often people will also, and I think rightly, show that this is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem Palm Sunday. He enters Jerusalem. He is the king coming into the gates of the city. So when it says you gates be lifted up, it's Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And what does he do in Jerusalem? Well, he goes and he he dies. He's come. The King of glory has come. But look look also down here, verse 3, especially. Verse 3, there's a question asked. Who may ascend? There's our word again. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? The picture uh, is of a great hill, and on top is the presence of God. So the hill of the Lord, well, it's a hill, and then on top, the presence of God. It's a metaphor. But it helps us picture the great length one must go to get to God. And then the writer repeats the question but it gives gives it a bit of a twist. Who may stand in his holy place? So who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand where God is? And then we get an answer. This is bad news. The answer comes in verse four. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, That's who can ascend to God's holy place. The pure person. The holy person. You can't just walk into where God is. You are a sinner. If you're not. You are unholy. A holy God will not let you into his presence. You can't just walk in there. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? It's the right question, isn't it? And as soon as you hear the question, you you want to know the answer because that's where God is. I, I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. I want to stand in his holy place. Is that true of you? Do you want to be in the presence of God to live and bask in his glory? It's better than life here. There's nothing greater Nothing more wonderful, beautiful, fulfilling? That's where we want to be in the presence of God. But the bad news is verse 4. You can't. Only the holy person can. This is bad news for bad people. Sinners will not ascend to where God is. We can read about this in Romans 3. All that sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The unrighteous will have no reward in heaven. They will not even have a place in heaven. The Christian faith requires a certain level of humility. Every one of us here who's a Christian, we have admitted that we are needy. And even more than being needy, we're bad. And Christians, true born-again Christians, we admit this, don't we? It's part of the entrance exam. Are you a male or female? Doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if you want to enter the church. You can be either male or female. Are you a Jew or a Gentile? Doesn't matter. You can be either. Are you rich or poor? Doesn't matter. That question isn't on the test. Are you a sinner or are you not a sinner? That's what matters. Christianity is a religion which requires a humble, a contrite heart. You must admit you are unrighteous, that you sin, that you cannot stand in the presence of God. That's the first thing you must do. Admit you cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. Secondly, you must become united to Jesus Christ. He bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners, and the Bible says that if you confess him as Lord... You will be saved. So you must place your faith in Him as your substitute. But even more than being your substitute, He alone among men is holy. He alone has ascended the hill of the Lord. And by placing your faith in Him, you too can ascend the hill of the Lord. Are you a sinner? Jesus will put you on his back. He himself will take you in his arms up the hill. He can make you fit to stand in the presence of God. The gates, the everlasting doors of heaven, they open for him. So you must hitch yourself to him. He will bring you in. This song, Psalm 24, it's not just about the ascension of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill, and you kind of go up into the city. It's not just about Jesus' ascension into Jerusalem. It's about his ascension into heaven. So when we read, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, this is about getting into heaven. It's about that entrance. And if you're a sinner, you you can see, first of all, There's a bit of a question and answer in Psalm 24. If you look at 7, you look at 8, and then again, I think at 9. There's, it's it's as if somebody was was asking a question. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And then there's a question, who is this King of glory? And then it says it again, Lift up your heads, O you gates. And then they ask, who is this king of glory? And then it's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. If you're a sinner, you can really, you can just imagine for a moment, you're, you're going into a great castle and you want to get into this castle. Or this castle is heaven. And you've got to get in to the gate, but the gates closed, and you're going up and you want to get into heaven, you want to get into this great castle and you, you knock and you say, lift up your heads, oh you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. What's your reason? Why are they gonna open for you? I think the answer is you say, I am with the king of glory. So let me read 7, 8, and 9, and then we'll pray together. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. I am with the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, for I am being brought in by the Lord of hosts. For I, fr- for I am a friend of this king, of this king of glory. That's the message, I think, of the ascension. He brings us in. If you do not know him in this intimate, saving way, speak to me, speak to one around you. We'd be happy and privileged to talk to you more about that. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that... You'll help us to see the value of this doctrine and that it will console us as we spend time here on this broken world. And I pray that we with Paul will long for heaven in the right sense. I pray that we'll work while we're here, but that we'll long for paradise. That we'll long to be in the presence of Christ. We pray.